Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to a very exciting episode. Joining the podcast is Lisa Craig. Lisa is the principal and founder of The Craig Group. The Craig Group helps local governments, community groups, cultural organizations, and state, national, and tribal partners protect and adapt communities from the impacts of climate change. Lisa will also share the challenges of adapting cultural resources to climate change. She'll share her own experiences working with local communities on these issues. We also discuss what historic resources should be preserved and which ones we might have to abandon to climate change. It's a provocative conversation, but ultimately one many of us will have to have. We'll also hear about Lisa's professional journey into the adaptation sector, something many of my listeners are doing themselves. We also get a sneak peek of some of the work I'm doing with Lisa in Trinidad and Tobago in 2023. It's a great conversation. Okay, upcoming episodes. Jesse Keenan returns again to share his thoughts on the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act and what it means for climate adaptation. I'm also working on an episode focused on the infrastructure bill that passed last year and now is in the implementation phase. Is that funding going to climate adaptation and resilience? I'll go on the ground in Washington, D.C. to find out. Some great stuff on the way. Okay, let's join Lisa Craig and talk grassroots adaptation. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Joining me is Lisa Craig. Lisa is the principal and founder of The Craig Group. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Hey, Doug. Glad to be here. Thanks a lot. It's awesome having you on, but let's just start off with the basics here. What is The Craig Group? Well, The Craig Group actually is a firm that is focused on resilience planning for historic communities in general. We deal mostly with how you adapt not only your community, but your buildings, your historic buildings to future conditions, sea level rise, climate change, wildfires. Those are all things that we're dealing with right now. And that's our firm's goal. So that's the Craig Group, and those are the services that you work on. Who are some of the partners and clients that you deal with? Oh, that's that's a great question. It's been interesting. I've had this company for about three years now, and who I find myself working with are community similar clients, individuals similar to my experience in Annapolis. Basically, it's either historic preservation programs within planning departments in cities such as New Bern, North Carolina, working also with uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida right now, completing a preservation plan with a resilience component in Incorporated into that. Little communities, Tarpon Springs, Florida is a little one that we've worked in. Continue to work actually in St. Augustine, Florida. It's in different locations doing some communications on climate and disaster resilience and adaptation in Oregon, a little bit in Idaho. It just spreads itself around. So really, it comes from the people you know, trying to help them do a better job of adapting their historic assets in what are largely heritage tourism-based communities. All right. So we're talking about historic preservation and climate change. And I do want to talk, we're going to talk about this later, but about your own sort of professional evolution into the adaptation space. I think it's a really interesting story, but you and I know each other. We haven't known each other a super long time, but I feel that you're a good friend. Give us the story. How did we meet? As you know, there is this conference called Keeping History Above Water, and that was something that was begun in Newport, Rhode Island, Newport Restoration Foundation, as we were all, at that time I was with the city of Annapolis, we were all dealing with this issue of the impacts of 
climate change. We were seeing significant increases in tidal flooding or sunny day flooding, as they call it. But we were also seeing increases in sea level rise. And many of us working in historic coastal communities in particular knew that this issue needed to be publicized to a larger group of not just those involved in historic preservation, but those involved in floodplain management in older and historic communities engineers, architects. So this conference started and from there it went to a number of communities, including at my time, the city of Annapolis, we hosted a Keeping History Above Water conference. And then in St. Augustine, Florida, And we really had the greatest opportunity to work there together on a podcast. And that all came about when we met at the National Adaptation Forum, if I remember correctly on this, Doug. So I was an independent business owner promoting the Craig Group's work at the National Adaptation Forum. And we had a chance to talk there. So that was where it all started. Yes, that Keeping History Above Water. Uh, I love that episode. It was great being St. Augustine. You were fantastic. We immediately bonded there. It was just you introduced me to all the right people and, you know, Marty Hilton and uh, it, Leslie is it Keys? Is it Keys? Who's your? Yes, Dr. Keys. Yes. Dr. Dr. Yes. Leslie Keys there. And so it was a great gang that was really helping me out to find the right people and just throwing new people in my face. And so I <laughs> talked to this person <laughs> interview. So it went really well. I enjoyed that a lot. And I recommend to my listeners, it's, it's been a few years to go back in the archive. And that was just a fantastic, the amount of people that I talked to, local government, journalist, Jeff Goodall. I even interviewed him from Rolling Stone. He was part of that. So it was a really cool episode. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk a bit about, I've covered cultural heritage and adaptation before, so we're not going to dig deep more broadly into that. I want to talk about the work and dealing with communities, but why is climate adaptation so important to cultural heritage in general? Well, I think it really is the touchstone for many people in their communities. Every community I've worked in, we've done a community values assessment. We ask people, what places? What places really matter? Oftentimes, it's not so much about the architecture, which is in itself significant. When I was working in Annapolis, we had a national historic landmark colonial community. And people come there because of the beauty and the character of that colonial city, landmark city. But it's also the experiences that people appreciate having in their downtowns, many times historic buildings, older downtowns, being in the public square, as you would see in St. Augustine, just being on the streets, having coffee outside of a much-loved cafe. They really experience place. And so it is about saving those places, about adapting those places so that they can ensure that what makes them feel comfortable, what makes them feel as if this is their community, what protects the character and the identity of those communities, in essence, the buildings, the environment, and the experiences. It's about adapting in order to preserve those. Okay, what we're discovering is that some of the most historic and culturally rich places in in the U.S., and I'm even sure around the world, are actually also some of the most vulnerable to climate change. And as you, I'm sure, have just, and I've learned and you've dealt with your entire careers, cultural resources don't necessarily get the respect that they deserve. Now we have this additional threat to it. Explain that to me. How's that all playing out in your field? Well, what I find really interesting is that in certain states, and this certainly was the case in Maryland when I was working there, 
really our emergency management personnel, and I guess I would start first state level, our state agencies, our, our state hazard mitigation officers, as we all know them, that are really helping local communities as well as the state plan for greater resilience, plan for the impacts of disasters, many of them being climate related in these, these locations, particularly coastal communities, which are experiencing more and more extreme precipitation events and other climate-related events. In those communities at the state level, we are starting to see incorporated into those mitigation planning efforts, and we call it mitigation, but for our intent and purposes, it's adaptation. They're incorporating cultural resources because they realize that they are significant identity elements of a community. They recognize that they bring in a significant amount of visitors. They are very much part of the economic base of a lot of small towns who have historic cores or historic neighborhoods. And so states are actually encouraging local governments to incorporate cultural resources and historic properties into their hazard mitigation plans. Certainly was the case in Maryland when I was working there. And Annapolis was actually a model for the state to use in terms of developing criteria for incorporating those resources into their hazard mitigation plans. But I'm seeing it in Massachusetts, where the state requires, as part of their municipal vulnerability program, an assessment of uh, historic assets as part of their MVP, as they call it, planning. Um, And in Florida, most recently with the Resilient Florida program, which is specifically calling out cultural resources as critical resources for the development of mitigation. Again, our language would be adaptation plans. I'm discovering very quickly that the disaster preparedness is just overlapping so much with climate adaptation, and that's where a lot of money's being spent. But there's only so much limited, I mean, well, there's limited money to be spent. And I think of cultural resources, and if people are allocating this, you know, is it going to be to protect people? And as you know, and I, w- I want you to maybe share some examples or your experiences that they're still building communities in the floodplain in areas that it, you shouldn't be building these areas in the you know, wildfire zones and such. And then if you have disaster preparedness money, which is a big pot of money in some areas, how are you going to prioritize it versus like helping a lot of people maybe in a community versus the cultural resources? You might just have one particular site that could get really expensive versus like maybe helping more broadly a group of people, but just a newer community. Are you seeing that out there? Do you have experiences like that? Here's what I see. First off, I have to advocate it is about people first. I do dozens and dozens of presentations a year. And what I try to tell people is that make sure, particularly as you said, Doug, disasters are overlapping it. And that's where we see a lot of the funds going for disaster planning. Those disasters are most often climate related, as we know and and accept. But the reality is people first. And, And my example of that has often been Let's make sure that if we're dealing with a historic house, for example, maybe it's a cultural center or a museum of some type, and you have visitors that come, you need to make sure that your visitors protected, that if you do have a hurricane on the way, that your volunteers and your staff know that they have a plan in place at home so that they can help with pairing 
historic property, knowing that their family is safe and a plan is is underway. So I always start with telling individuals that it really is people first. But once you know you have a plan, you need to basically address the issues that are address the issues that your property is going to be dealing with depending on the kind of event. So it kind of goes from people to your individual property. What types of retrofits do you need to be developing for that building? Do you need to put in barriers for flooding at windows and doors? Do you need to create some smaller uh, seawalls? Do you need to do a nature-based strategy to absorb water? What are all the things that you need to prepare for for these future events? And that's the component of planning where my firm finds itself. I think that uh, to that bigger picture of people perhaps over place, again, when we did our community values assessments, it was the experiences that define those communities. I often joke in Annapolis, it's really about bars and boats, because when we assessed our community, the Things, the properties, the places they wanted to see recovered the quickest were the downtown taverns, restaurants, and they wanted to see the boats and hear the boats Hmm. back in Ego Alley. So different communities will identify their priorities. They will say the buildings that are the most important to them. And again, sometimes it's not those landmark properties that we see. Sometimes it really is, again, about the experiences and the places that they care dramatically about. Sometimes it's a dock. Sometimes it's one main street. And oftentimes it's shared by more than one person in that community. It's dozens of people feeling that they need to ensure that in order for their community to recover, that they plan for the protection and prioritization of certain assets. Not all places are important equally. And I guess I always try to remind people we do have limited funding available. So you can find out from a community that a place really matters. But I come down to something like Cape Hatteras. I think many of us are aware that Cape Hatteras was relocated. The lighthouse of Cape Hatteras was relocated many, many years ago. It's now threatened again. The reason it was located then, it's interesting to note the National Park Service thought that was an extraordinarily expensive endeavor to take on and really were very hesitant to do it. It was because the community itself decided, hey, it's on the front page of our tour guide for our community. You have to save Cape Hatteras life. So that's how that ended up happening in this public-private venture. But as I said, once you mentioned uh, Jeff Goodell, as I said once to Jeff, we can't save every lighthouse. There is not enough money in the world. So we really do have to come down to the places that our communities call out as those most important to protect and ensure are passed on to the next generation for their use and enjoyment. Okay. And I want to talk about this plan because that to me is very interesting because people are having frank conversation. And there's some language that you shared with me. And I just want to read it because you just articulate it much better. But then I'll follow up with some questions. Planning for the in- inevitable loss of historic resources now underway in many historic communities and prioritizing what community members value most is the best option local government has to protect the places and experiences that define their communities 
for residents and visitors. And you basically just sort of explain that. And is there an organized way? And maybe you do this with the Craig group, but to figure out what the community values most, because that's just a lot of empty rhetoric, unless you come up with some sort of process and having those conversations. What's that like? Yeah, actually, you know, I've looked at existing planning approaches and the one that we've adopted that we used very successfully in Annapolis kind of tested it was the concept uh, FEMA has developed. So uh, the Federal Emergency Management Agency has kind of a four-step process specifically targeted to historic resources. And they developed this way back in 2005 but not had really tested it from beginning to end, working with one community to come up with what is the planning process? How do you engage residents to help with this concept of prioritizing resources for preparedness and recovery? So we tested it. It was some, it was called a community values model. How do we understand what places matter to the community. So there were a lot of factors they used. One, when we're dealing specifically with historic assets, you know, we look at, is it nationally significant? Is it significant on a state level or a local level? So there's some kind of a hierarchy there in terms of value to our nation's heritage. And then you look at other issues. What is the economic gain we realize from this property? Is it a historic downtown with a couple of great historic blocks? We need to protect those because really it contributes to the larger local economy. So that's an indicator you look at. What are places that are important to the community through this tool we call public sentiment? What is the public sentiment for these properties? And that was where FEMA didn't really have a lot of guidance to offer. So we had to, as I said, test that. And we did it through a series of online surveys. We did it through some visual preference exercises, images of the city, asking them where they rated on a scale of one one to 10. We looked at streetscapes. We looked outside of the city. We looked at view sheds, looking back into the city. Our downtown, I had a council member at that time that said, you know, looking back from uh, the Severn into the city of Annapolis from the water was the million dollar postcard view. So we used a number of tools. We, as I said, we did surveys. We went to conferences outside the city where we got responses from people who visited Annapolis and what did they recall as the most important experiences, most important and significant buildings to them. And then just a series of focus groups, town hall meetings, anything we could do to solicit their feedback. And the last and probably one of the most successful one was a program going on at that time with the National Trust for Historic Preservation called uh, This Place Matters. So we asked them, what places matter? And they went out and they took a picture in front of a place that mattered to them, sent it to us, posted it on uh, This Place Matters webpage that the National Trust hosted. And so we we picked up that information a variety of ways and were therefore able to, through kind of a rating system, come up with about a quarter of the properties within our floodplain area that really mattered to people that they identified as significant, both for purposes of preparedness and recovery. Okay, I want to come back to what the outcomes of that process. But it just occurred to me, and even in previous conversations, that 
historic places, be it local ordinances or state laws or even national, federal, historic places, there's legal mechanisms to protect some of these areas. You just can't build something right next to it. Or if you want to renovate it, you have to go through a permitting process. Are there legal recourses for people that let's say a community says, you know what? We just can't protect this against sea level rise or whatever that in this notion of like letting something go. Could they just sue someone to make them adapt? That's an interesting point. I think when it comes right down to it, there are too many exceptions for adaptation, if you ask me. For example, it is allowed for a local government in adopting a floodplain management ordinance to provide an exception for historic properties to have to meet the requirements of what many people may or may not know the language or the terms, but base flood elevation, basically that 1% chance or sometimes called the 100-year flood event chance. You need to adapt your buildings in existing new construction to make sure that your lowest floor is above that base flood. And usually they added a couple of additional feet just for the issue of storm surge. So historic properties, if you renovate those buildings and do what they call substantial improvements, substantial renovations, whereas if you're a new property, you're not designated as historic, you're not in a historic district, you must meet that requirement. But if you're a historic building, you can opt out. And I think that actually does a disservice to historic communities, to property owners, because they're not really even encouraged to take interim steps, minimum steps. Can you elevate your building a couple of feet? There is now guidance the National Park Service has put out that clearly identifies opportunities for creating greater resilience, adapting your building to flooding or extreme events. And so some people, some individual property owners are taking care of that and are doing so. Others just find it easier to exempt themselves. I just got off the phone uh, yesterday with an architect in Annapolis who said basically we would have to raise this one house nine and a half feet. Now, this is a small two-story, previously a sea captain's home, late 19th century, nine and a half feet. That's taller than the first story is right now. So they're deciding not to do it. And those are the choices that they have to make. But as I said to the architect I was talking with, you know, you might as well document that property thoroughly because you may have to ready for losing it in a major storm event or certainly to significant tidal flooding in the future. You know, I'm sure it's already happening out there, but I think, you know, I'm going to use Fort Jefferson. That's what it is, that place off of the Keys, right? I should know this. I'm from Florida. Fort mm-hmm. Jefferson is a national park there. And that's that's doomed. It's truly doomed with three, four feet sea level rise. But you think of like how the conservation sector, you know, they got into the business of suing, be it, you know, the Fish and Wildlife Service that you're not protecting the species well enough or this habitat. Will there be a whole interest group that goes around sort of suing to protect these historic places like that? 
even though you might actually have quite a bit of agreements like, okay, it's going to be impossible to do this, or it's just too expensive and something else is going to suffer, sort of the same conversation you might have with wildlife. But I'd be curious if there are emerging interest groups that are going around potentially just suing to suing people to adapt. Uh, I bet it's going to happen. It'll happen. You know, it, it comes back down to what the interests of that group would be. I can tell you right now, I, I just don't know of any of the national preservation organizations, in, including Preservation Action, you know, which is a strong advocacy organization. I just don't see them at that level taking that action. And I think it's primarily because of the fact that we are working so hard as a community to ensure that we have strategies for adaptation in place, that we give people the tools they need. That when I work with communities, while yes, it's, it's important to complete infrastructure replacement projects on stormwater systems so that you have greater capacity for stormwater flow, that you do raise your systems above the floodplain areas. But what I more importantly deal with is the individual property owner educating them that it is not FEMA, it is not, you know, your state emergency management that is responsible for ensuring that your property is ready for the next major event, that reducing risk on your property is your responsibility as a property owner. So it's our job at the local government level, at the nonprofit level, to enhance public awareness, to give them the tools they need to help them understand how they can better adapt their buildings and uh, reduce the risk of flooding, even with the basics such as purchasing, you know, it being part of the National Flood Insurance Program and purchasing flood insurance. It's critical. It's critical to start planning for this because we cannot save everything and you never know what major disaster is going to occur next. And it doesn't have to be coastal. We can see it with tornadoes. We can see it with the extreme flooding that we saw in Kentucky. You know, this is devastating and losing a historic property really does mean something, particularly to property owners that have invested money into the rehabilitation of those properties. And I see it. I see it in small towns where there are wildfires that have occurred. We did some great work in research, a community of talent, Oregon, which lost most of its downtown to a wildfire. And we know those wildfires are climate related because of the drought because of the intensity of the fires that occur and the winds that whip up and carry them from one community to another. And those communities, when they lose those historic buildings, whether they have invested money in them or not, they've lost that sense of place. And so we've got communities that are rebuilding in Oregon after these major events who've decided that they want to to protect that shell of a building. They want to restore it to what it was previously. And they could have just cleared the ground. But one of the comments that I heard was the fact that it is our community's character. It's what gives us our identity. And so we're going to rebuild and we're going to use that building as the basis for new development to look like or to feel like the historic community we just lost. 
and so I recognize the notion of even local communities or members of the community suing to protect a historic property. That's nothing new, but I, I, I'm interested in this concept that if you look at sort of the wildlife, like the history of it, you know, most of the early groups were just hunting groups and they were, they weren't necessarily there to design to like sue for action. Whereas, you know, in the seventies and eighties, you had that became an increasingly useful tool for conservation groups. And I, I just adaptation, I think is going to, you know, be at these, like you just said, those larger historic, you know, trust organizations aren't doing that, but I think we're going to see an evolution and people are, are going to start picking fights on what to, to save and what not to save. And, you know, right now it's, it's sort of this rational conversation where you're just talking to the community, but no, I think, <laughs> I think it's coming. It's going to get more. Think it's- I think illegal, like the stakes are going to be so much higher and adaptation will go from, I mean, it'll just be all sorts of adaptation lawyers out there that are just going to get, get involved. It's oh, a new a industry, a yeah. new industry, Doug. Yeah. And if anything, it's going to be from property owner to property owner, Doug, that's where it's going to occur. Because if you think about it at times, there are uh, some property owners may adapt their building and it can have negative consequences on the adjacent property yeah. owner. So I think if we go down that path, it kind of comes back to that, you know, good neighbors, good fences make good neighbors, maybe not good seawalls make good neighbors. So, (laughs) well, okay. Just following through this idea of working with communities and such that there's this notion for a lot of communities and individual landowners that they still have time to live in these at-risk places. And so the storm might come through, but it actually the, right now it might not be safe form, even just responding to a storm. Could you kind of elaborate on that? What does it mean that they, that they're, they don't really, they're not living in the right time yet. They think they have these this 10, 20, 30 years to deal with this. Well, I think it's also like that false label of the 100 year storm event. We spent a lot of time communicating and educating the public about the fact that we're not talking about one time in 100 years. We're talking about a 1% chance every single year that you could potentially be hit by a major flooding event. So I think that's one of my first concerns is to get away from that concept. The second would be the fact that uh, you have individuals that buy these properties. I mean, the Outer Banks is a perfect example of places where we've heard people buying a property and they think they have the time. They're going to come in and renovate it later. They're not really living there right now. They're using it, you know, as a second home or they're going to rent it out as an Airbnb. And three months later, it's washed away into the ocean. So I think we can't fool ourselves that we've got plenty of time to deal with this. I think we go back to what you said earlier about properties being constructed in these high-risk flood zones. I think it's just properties being purchased in these high-risk flood zones where people seem to just believe that it's not going to happen to them. And when it does... It's devastating. You lost your entire investment in that real estate. And you know what? You're not going to necessarily be able to build there again. Or if you do build there again, you know, it's going to be an issue of you better have the cash because you're not going to find a bank who's going to finance that for you. So I think that is going to be more the reality and communities will have to start doing more of these conservation zone purchases. There are communities, St. Augustine, when I was working with them, had identified locations that they would acquire to keep 
owners from building instead to have it be a property that could absorb floodwaters and hopefully work to protect other properties adjacent to it by just being vacant land that could serve that particular role for flooding adaptation. Okay. So a lot of post-disaster funding for communities comes years after the event. So you might have missed your window to help them at that moment, but what can be done at that point? I mean, there's still a lot of positive things that can come out of that, right? What are the things? Yeah, this is why I think it's really important for all communities with historic assets to develop a plan. I don't care if it's in your city's comprehensive plan, if it's in your historic preservation plan, your hazard mitigation plan, an adaptation plan. Those are actually plans. We have plenty of adaptation plans out there. But what I'm saying is identify what needs to be protected and start the planning process. Because if you have that plan in place, you can be ready to get the funding that is going to be made available. And in your planning priorities, you may identify the fact that you need to, you know, replace infrastructure, that you need to develop some type of programming for greater public awareness, that you may need to document a dozen buildings that are at high risk, that are highly vulnerable to flooding or storm events. And so if you identify that in your planning documents now before a major event happens, Then when you get funding, when, let's say, the National Park Service, which receives disaster funding assistance after a major presidentially declared disaster event, they can pass that through. And you're right. Sometimes it can take 18 months to two years to get that money into the local level. But then at least you have a plan. You know you need to do some vulnerability assessments and surveys of some of your historic districts that you haven't yet done. Or in places like New Bern, North Carolina, where I worked, they had a very, very rich African-American history with neighborhoods that were 80% rental. And yet at the same time, it was an extremely important, culturally significant area hadn't done the intensive level survey, hadn't done vulnerability surveys on any of those resources. Identify that, put it in your hazard mitigation plan, your preservation plan, your comp plan, then you'll be ready to spend the money if that disaster happens. Okay, guys, I'm going to put Lisa on the spot and I came up with this category and I I don't mean to be lighthearted. These are important areas, but still this whole idea of how we're going to spend our monies is we're going to have to make a lot of tough decisions and I'm going to use Lisa's expertise and we're just briefly going to go through these and Lisa's mind might change in the coming years, but we're just going to have figure this out really quickly and I'm calling it adapt or abandon. I'm going to read some communities and Lisa's going to give her professional advice and even if it's her qualitative opinion about all these things. Let's go through these really quickly. Lisa, first, Jamestown, Virginia. Adapt. Because I think it could be a really good model for how we deal with particularly archaeological sites. And Jamestown is just too significant to just abandon. So you won't hear any preservationists saying abandon. Okay. And I probably should have added sea level rise is the big issue going to impact that. Yeah. Fort Jefferson, adapt or abandon? Abandon. Okay. And Fort Jefferson, again, is in Florida. We mentioned it earlier. There are other ways to experience Fort Jefferson. And I think it's going to be one of those monitoring 
the impacts of sea level rise, understanding how we can apply that again to other significant coastal historic sites. So abandoned, but abandoned with documentation occurring and monitoring. All right. This will be a tough one. Vanuel Hall, right there on Boston Harbor, obviously sea level rise is the impact. Adapt. That's too too important a resource, and I think that you can adapt that resource. You can accommodate water in buildings such as that. We've seen it actually in places like Alexandria, where they've learned to live with water. Those masonry buildings, they wash in and it washes out. And so I think, I think adapt. All right, this next one. There's you're going to have a bias. You need to take off your biased hat in this and just give an honest answer. Annapolis, Maryland. Adapt. (laughs) I didn't spend five years working (laughs) with that community. I have too many friends there. And hey, my kids go down. They still live in Maryland and they go downtown. So I want it to adapt. I would never say abandon for Annapolis. And just for, for my listeners, too, I I was looking up and there's various lists of saying top historic places under threat of climate change. And I didn't pick them all, but I got just a handful here. And so this next one, northern New Mexico and Arizona is part of this. But some of the Native American monuments there, like Mesa Verde and all that, they're going to be under threat of wildfire. Adapt or abandon? Adapt. <laughs> I think there's too much. There's, I know. I was like, I abandoned one. I think that there is too much archaeological prehistoric value still there that we don't know enough about yet, as well as just the fact that it represents such an important part of human development. And I think it has great potential for study to understand how we deal with wildfire and cultural resources in other locations. And unfortunately, it is, again, one of those, let's make sure we documented it thoroughly now, because if wildfire occurs, that's complete devastation. It's not like flooding. Wildfire is dramatic. It's completely devastating to a community. And the resource is lost. So we have to adapt for wildfire. I'm not answering all these, but I'll answer that. You, yeah, adapt. I mean, this, it's a, those places are glorious and the history there and just going so far back, it's, they're amazing. And so you, this is where you pick a fight and make sure that these areas are adapting. All right, last one. And it's more of a complex question because you think about different parts of it, but Charleston, South Carolina. Adapt. I mean, it's, again, <laughs> I think... It's a very hard, and this is Charleston. I just was talking to a friend there last month, and she was telling me that it is that threat of storms. When they had a series of storms for in a year that was flooding Charleston left and right, they had dozens and dozens of property owners coming in to request elevations. Unfortunately, they forget when they don't have a number of storm events. And when the tidal flooding isn't at the level, she said this past year, they had maybe two applicants come in looking to elevate their buildings. Um, You know, it's a big Army Corps study going on. And I certainly don't advocate ADAPT 
with a huge seawall as it's being designed by the Army Corps because of the fact that they basically do a, a benefit cost analysis. It makes no sense to them to actually use a combination of, of nature based and a much more sympathetic seawall construction. Adapting is going to mean being more creative particularly in these historic coastal communities. So that's what I want to see as part of an adaptation strategy for Charleston. All right, great. You picked, I think you saved most of them. It just shows you all the tough decisions we have to make. And I, I just hope people don't, I, not making lie, these are very important communities, but we are going to have to make some tough decisions. And when you start thinking about three, six, nine feet of sea level rise, this all of a sudden goes from just being Oh, well, let's think about saving these places to all of a sudden you're like that we can't save it. And so we, we, we do have a lot of tough conversations in our future and just getting Lisa's expertise and our appreciation of historic sites. So I'm sure that those it, it'll be remains to be seen as how we prioritize these areas and, and allocating the resources to protect them. All right, Lisa, thanks for that. I'm sure that was tough for you. You're sitting there thinking, all right, I can't throw in the towel on these areas. And I, and I get it. It's tough. And you talk to the communities and it gets that much more complex. But I want to pivot again and talk about adaptation. And there's this adaptation sector that's emerging out there. And you're in the thick of it. And you had your own career evolution. And, you know, maybe just briefly, you did not start off doing climate adaptation. And now you're here in the thick of it. And a lot of people are going through that. Can you give us briefly your history and how you just gravitated toward adaptation? Well, you know, I actually began my career in historic preservation by moving from the West Coast, from California, to Savannah, Georgia. And I went to school at the Savannah College of Art and Design to get my undergraduate degree in historic preservation. So here I was in this, you know, beautiful southern city, learning a lot about the relationship between water. Tybee Island, for example, is a, a lovely historic community. It actually now has a sea level rise master plan in place. So of all places, but the reality was, is I began my career after I graduated with my degree Green Historic Preservation by moving back to the West Coast and ended up in Oregon, did a few years in preservation at the University of Oregon, and then became the director of a statewide nonprofit preservation organization in Oregon that was an advocate for protecting historic resources. From there, I was recruited to the National Trust for Historic Preservation and served as a director of a regional office there out of the D.C. office covering some of our most historic places in Maryland, Virginia, Washington, D.C. So that was a wonderful grounding in history and historic architecture. From there, I ended up becoming the state historic preservation officer. There is one in each state. And for purposes of the District of Columbia, whereas I served as a state historic preservation officer, Washington, D.C. is recognized as a state in that regard. So work some time there. Actually, there was a lot of tidal flooding events that went on in Georgetown and the tidal basin at that time, but it really wasn't on my radar. Ended up getting a, a job in property redevelopment, which is really where I wanted to be. I wanted to be closer to the actual rehabilitation of historic properties. So ended up working for a company that did historic military housing. And I was blessed to work with military families at places like Pearl Harbor, the United States Air Force Academy, Presidio in San Francisco, Great Lakes Naval Air Station. 
So after doing that for a number of years and my family feeling as if they weren't seeing me frequently enough because I was off uh, in other locales, took a position with the city of Annapolis and as chief of historic preservation there really began looking for the first time, this was about 2011, at some of the real threats to historic properties that were occurring because of the fact that by 2013, the city of Annapolis had been identified as the community with the largest increase in tidal flooding events in the past 50 years, a 925% increase. From there, I worked very closely with the National Trust for Historic Preservation. They were just starting to look at this issue of the impact of climate change on historic assets, as well as the state of Maryland, Maryland's Historical Trust, updating their state preservation plan, realizing that more and more coastal communities in Maryland were being impacted by sea level rise. And uh, what we saw is these very extreme storm events that were occurring and significant runoff happening in the city. And that actually really tied well into the United States Naval Academy. So the city of Annapolis and the U.S. Naval Academy worked together jointly to see how we could mutually benefit each other in developing strategies and responses for addressing sea level rise and climate change impacts on our two national historic landmark districts. Well, (laughs) you've had quite a diverse career. And yeah, in all of those experiences, I'm sure it's just serving you so well as you get into the adaptation space. And speaking of adaptation, you'd mentioned briefly early on that you went to the National Adaptation Forum and we talked there and we did a brief interview then. It's been a while. Another adaptation forum is coming up in Baltimore of this year, not far from Annapolis. Are you going? I am not going to the forum this year, no. Okay. So, and I, I'm curious, and I, I'm not quite sure if I'm going to go, just that there's a variety of reasons, but why don't you want to go? You went before, but why, why wouldn't you go to the forum? You know, I have become pretty much committed to working or attending conferences, workshops, seminars with new audiences, hence why I did go to the National Adaptation Forum, but I didn't find a fit for what my company does. It was not quite boots on the ground, practical enough application. A lot of good people doing a lot of interesting studies, uh, many in an academic setting. But the work that I do and that I do with my team, and I, I just for a moment, I just mentioned the fact that I actually bring on young people in different disciplines, communications, architecture, GIS systems, preservation as well, because of the fact that I want them to learn about preservation through this lens of adapting our historic communities. Uh, There's always threats to historic communities. And I just felt, for example, that at the Adaptation Forum, it may be a great location for me in the future to identify a staff person looking to to, you know, learn more about the area of preservation. But I, again, just really need to focus on places. For example, floodplain managers conferences, really interesting people to talk and a lot of new stuff I learned. So I send my staff to 
things like the Ohio State Floodplain Managers Conference. I've got a staff person going there in the next week or so. So I really try to get out of my box and start to learn a little bit more about other disciplines and am focusing more on those that have a, a real impact, such as the floodplain managers, architects, planners. That's where I spend my time and my money. Okay. No, hopefully it's useful feedback for organizers because I think they're always trying to figure out how to make it more appealing to a broader section of the adaptation space, but it's certainly not easy. Okay. We're almost done with this conversation, but I, I do want to give my listeners, you and I are collaborating. I'm working with you, telling a story that on a project that you're working on, and we're not actually going to do it till 2023. We've been working a bit on it in advance, but give my listeners just a quick preview of what we're going to be collaborating on. Yeah, this is really a great opportunity. I'm really looking forward to it. We actually have the chance, our firm is working uh, through the University of Florida, which we've had experience working before in Nantucket, actually, Doug, remember we had you participating in the, the workshop, we had done a workshop on resilience in Nantucket. And so, again, through the University of Florida, working with the National Trust of Trinidad and Tobago. So again, a national organization that focuses on cultural resources, historic assets, through a grant from the United States Department of State, the Ambassadors Fund, the only cultural resource fund or grant that was awarded from that fund was awarded to Trinidad and Tobago specifically to plan for climate, resilience, and adaptation. And so, Doug, you're going to be coming along. We're going to do another Keeping History Above Water conference. It will be in Trinidad and Tobago in late March of 2023. And we will be talking about this topic from an international small island nations perspective. What can small island nations do? So we'll bring some of what we've learned by working in island communities, you know, for example, Nantucket being a model, and how we look at not just historic resources, but cultural traditions and practices and natural heritage. Natural resources are very much a part of Trinidad and Tobago. And so we are partnering with the University of Florida and our National Trust Trinidad and Tobago to do a vulnerability assessment of historic assets, historic places on the island impacted by sea level rise and climate change. And then we'll be following that up with some adaptation strategies to propose, as well as a three-day conference to address that issue, inviting people from all over the Caribbean to attend and learn from some of the terrific international speakers and panel members about how to increase resilience in these communities. Yeah, I really struggled deciding if I should work on this with you. You know, I was <laughs> pondering it for a while and then Trinidad and Tobago. I get to go to Trinidad and Tobago, but never been very excited about the work. I mean, the work obviously sounds fascinating and just I'm looking forward to telling that story and actually getting to the island. I haven't done any travel since COVID started. I've been doing a lot of these episodes just remotely and now I'm trying to get back into it. So I'm super cool that we're working on this together, Lisa. And we, I think we've 
got a lot of checking in to do over the next probably six to seven months, but it's going to be exciting. All right, Lisa, last question that I ask all my guests that you're familiar with. If you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, who should it be? Marty Hilton, who is the new climate change architect for the National Park Service. Marty is a a great uh, collaborator, really established a model program for historic preservation at the University of Florida, doing 3D laser imagery and visualization of the potential effects of sea level rise on historic communities. And he, um, the Park Service is fortunate to have him. He is going to be planning for and developing strategies for climate resilience for over 400 and some units of the National Park Service over the next many decades, I am sure. But great guy, very knowledgeable, and we're fortunate to have him working also closely with the natural resource side of the National Park Service. Great suggestion. I love Marty. I haven't worked with him much, but just when we were at Keeping History, he was a great guy. Showed me around a bit. And yeah, he's a, he was in, he's in my old program, the climate change response program at the National Park Service. So that's kind of exciting too that they brought that position on. All right, Lisa, this has been fantastic. If people want to learn more about what you do and just sort of the services and the people that you work with, what do you recommend that they can do to learn more? Oh, well, appreciate it if they head on over to my website, thecraiggrouppartners.com, and you'll see a little bit about the projects that we do and who's on our team. Always looking for smart young people. If anyone's interested in going into this area of preservation and uh, adaptation resilience planning, just hit that contact button and, and reach out to me. And I get contacted by people all the time that are interested in getting to the adaptation space. And I've actually funneled them to Lisa because you just you've had an amazing career and you're still leading in this area. So if you're out there, Lisa is very accessible. So I'm speaking on your behalf, Lisa. Thanks. Lisa, this has been fantastic. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And again, we're going to be collaborating on super cool project. Thanks again. Sure. Thank you, Doug. I really appreciate it. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Lisa for coming on the podcast to share her adaptation story. I enjoyed hearing her experiences working with local communities. It obviously takes a lot of meetings and workshops to figure out what a community really wants. And many more of these will be necessary in the years ahead as more communities grapple with the challenges of adapting to climate change. I especially enjoyed our adapt or abandon conversation. Again, not an issue to take lightly, but it was interesting getting Lisa's professional opinion on these topics. There will be a lot of subjective decision-making when it comes to preserving historic places under threat from climate change. Lisa and her team have developed a good framework to help communities adapt. This is the sausage-making of climate adaptation that I frequently mention. If you want to learn more, check out Lisa's website or reach out to Lisa herself. She's very accessible, and I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. Okay, so it looks like I'm going to the National Adaptation Forum in Baltimore this year. It's been a while since I've been to a conference. I'm very excited. I'm on assignment for an episode. In previous forums, I've been able to connect with listeners. I love meeting people in person, chance to chat about the work that you do. If you're planning to go, feel free to reach out in advance. I'll be on the lookout for you when I'm there. Maybe you're on a presentation panel. Let me know. 
I'll try to check it out. Okay, I'm always hearing from listeners that they have started listening to the podcast in the last few months or the last year, and that means they have missed out on a bountiful archive if they haven't poked around at previous episodes. So I'm going to dig into the vault when I can and highlight two previous episodes in case you need some recommendations. First up, episode 126, The Fundamentals of National Security and Climate Change. I hosted Commander Andrew Cameron of the U.S. Naval War College. We discussed how the U.S. military is approaching climate change, how she teaches this topic to military officers. We learned what military branch is ahead on climate planning and how countries like China and Russia are aggressively ramping up their adaptation efforts. This episode will ground you on the fundamentals of climate change and national security. Okay, next up, episode 113, talking climate adaptation with the Walton Family Foundation's Environment Program. I hosted Dr. Moore McDonald of the Walton Foundation. Moore is the head of the Environment Program there. Moore shared the focus of the foundation with an emphasis on Louisiana coastal planning, wetland restoration, and the role of the Mississippi River in adaptation. We also discussed strategic planning at a foundation integrating adaptation into conservation planning, and the challenges of risk-taking for a foundation. Definitely check those out. The links are in the show notes. All right. So what is your adaptation story? Do people that you engage with understand what is climate adaptation? Are you finding that webinars and white papers really aren't resonating in ways that promote your work? Well, consider telling your story in a podcast. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation story, consider sponsoring a whole episode of America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work that you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I go on location and record these sponsored podcasts, which allows you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me to identify experts that represent the amazing work that you're doing. Some of my partners have included MIT, Harvard, Natural Resources Defense Council, University of Pennsylvania at Wharton, UCLA, some corporate clients. It's a long list, and we've been telling some great stories. And it's a chance to share your story with all my listeners who represent the most influential people in the adaptation sector. Most projects have communications written into them. Consider budging in a podcast. And podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation many groups work into their communication strategies. If you're doing grant work with a foundation, maybe you want to highlight the adaptation resilient work that this foundation is funding. There's no better platform than this podcast to get the word out on adaptation to some of the most influential and active adaptation professionals in the world. Okay, and if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, reach out. I do a lot of speaking. I've been doing some keynote presentations, and they're really good. I share stories from the podcast and my own professional experiences doing adaptation. You can contact me at my website, americadapts.org. Okay, guys, you know I say this every episode. I love hearing from you. I mean it. Take that time. I take a lot of time, provide you with this great content. Take some time. Send me a short email. Tell me what you do. Tell me how you found the podcast. It's really useful information. Okay, you can reach me at americadapts at gmail.com. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.